All right, well, turn with me in your Bible to Joshua chapter 9 as we continue through the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, I look forward to this time every week where we can open up our Bibles together and hear from you in your word. And we just ask that you would remove distractions. Uh, we live in such a, a busy culture and so many things that are grabbing at our attention. And we give you our attention. We're here to do more than to go to a service. We're here to draw near to you to hear your word and be doers of your word. And as we sang, you're the great I am and you're with us and you've given us your word. And so God, would you work and would you move in a powerful way? In Jesus' name, amen. Hoodwinked. Hoodwinked, what does it mean? Deceived, duped. Have the wool pulled over your eyes. Ever been there? If you have, I'd love to hear about it. If you've got a good story, maybe about a used car that turned out to be a lemon, shoot me an email or find me on Facebook because I just want to make sure you're listening. Plus those stories might save me from a world of hurt down the road, right? But I think we've all been hoodwinked at a different point in our lives. It's, it's a big part of life. It's a part of American history. There's a guy named Charles Ponzi. He comes up with the Ponzi scheme in the 1920s. He, he's become infamous in his reputation. But he was an immigrant that came over from Italy. And he had this idea where you can buy these coupons and redeem them. But you could also do that over in Italy and buy them much cheaper and sell them for more money here in the United States. So that's what he did. His profit margin was 400%. He got thousands of people to then give their money to him for him to invest. The only problem was is that he never invested their money. Sound familiar? And so he was making $250,000 a day in the 1920s. So he's got the reputation of the Ponzi scheme. Another guy in the early 1800s, no joke, his name was Gregor McGregor. And I'm not deceiving you. You can look him up. But his name was Gregor McGregor. And he told people in England of this island that didn't exist. But he convinced them that there was this island. To the point where they were colonists. A group of 200 people went out on a boat. And of course they all died. They never found this island. It didn't exist. So here comes another group to go out. And some of them did survive and came back and exposed him as a carn artist. It's not only part of life, but it's a part of the scriptures. It's a part of Israel's history in this chapter that is before us. They get scammed, they get schemed by a group called the Gibeonites. We're going to read through, go through this text this morning. Then we're going to look and pause how we can apply God's word to our life. Chapter 9, verse 1. And it came to pass when all of the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills, in the lowland, in the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perzite, the Hivite, and don't forget the Jebusite, heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. They've had two victories, Jericho and Ai. So now these independent kings, they were monarchs of these cities. They gather their forces together. They come in one accord to attack the children of Israel. There's really no surprise at the timing of the attack. It's just after the nation of Israel has taken a break to seek the Lord. 
You remember last week, if you were here, you guys were Mount Ebal. You were the Mount of Cursing. And you guys have stayed on the same side of the sanctuary. You'd think you would have migrated over to the side of blessing. But you guys were Mount Gerizim. If you missed it, you're absolutely clueless in what I'm talking about. Go back and listen. But we reenacted them reading from the blessings and the cursings, the sacrifice unto the Lord. Point being, they had an amazing time with God. Right after this amazing time with God, then what happens? Here comes the attack that they've never faced before. Sound familiar? You have a wonderful time with the Lord. God's meeting you in the scriptures. Decide to make worship a priority. And then all of a sudden, here comes the attack from the enemy. And you're like, I've never experienced this before. What in the world is happening to me and to my family and my friends? The enemy is doing a full-on assault. We see this here in Joshua. We see it in Elijah's life. Elijah makes this huge stand against the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel gives him a death threat and he runs in fear. He doesn't even want to live anymore. He's attacked spiritually. Jesus, when he was baptized, a great day, the Father speaks audibly from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. We turn the page. The Holy Spirit leads him to the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. The attack comes after this amazing time with the Father. Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ's glory is seen. A couple of guest visitors, Moses and Elijah, just happened to to show up. They leave this amazing mountaintop experience go back down to find a boy who's demon-possessed that no one can cast out. Nothing like a little bit of spiritual opposition right after some great time with God. We can come to expect that kind of assault. I think there's also a lesson here is that the enemies of God learn how to walk in unity. They no doubt had differences as these kings fought over resources, but they leave those differences aside because of survival. We know that there's real power in unity, that two is better than one. Ecclesiastes talks to us about that. Jesus prayed for the unity of the church in John 17, but it seems to be an area that we struggle in, not just in our church individually, but churches as a whole is getting along together and being able to set aside petty differences for the mission that God has given to us. God wants heaven to be full and hell to be empty. Amen? Amen. We should be so consumed with that commission that God has given to us to make disciples that we don't have time for hurt feelings and petty differences. It's one thing to argue over doctrine and hold to the truth of God's word, but that's many times not where the division comes inside. And this is a real reminder, if the enemies of God can unite in unity, how much more so the church of God. There's another attack that takes place in verse 3 and 4. It's of a different nature. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done, to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. Gibeon was the next city to be attacked. It's just six miles southwest of Ai. It's six miles northwest of Jerusalem. If you look at a Bible, the map in the back of your Bible, it's right there. It's where they're headed to attack. They know they're about ready to be defeated. So instead of joining the alliance, to attack Israel, they're going to come in as crafty ambassadors. 
They're going to come in and try to get something that doesn't belong to them through deceit. And we'll see this deceit unfold. And that's what Satan does as well. There is that full-on attack that we can see, but there's also where he's coming at us in a very crafty manner. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, we're told that Satan, as well as his apostles, he's got his workers, his ambassadors, will come as an angel of light. Church family, Satan's never going to show up with red pajamas, with a pitchfork, and some horns saying, I'm going to destroy your life, you know? Give me those precious things that God has promised you. He's going to come through lies. He's going to come as a thief that comes to kill and to steal and destroy. An angel of light, he can transform himself as an angel of light. If you look at false religions, you'll find that many of them have this common thing. An angel came to them and gave them their scriptures. That's the case with the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith claims an angel came to him, and I don't doubt that. But do you know who the angel was? Satan. Satan gave him the Book of Mormon. Galatians 1 verse 10 tells us, Paul says that whether we or an angel come to you and give you another gospel, let them be accursed. Mormons will try to convince you that they're Christians, that they follow the Bible, that there's no disagreement from the Book of Mormon and the scriptures, but there absolutely is. There are two different gospels. There are two different plans of salvation. There are two different Jesus Christ. There's Jesus of the Bible, the one true living God, and the Jesus of the Book of Mormon. And you have to be very careful. There's going to be those that come in in different areas of your life and instead of a very front attack, they're going to try this backdoor attack that we see in these next few verses. So continuing in verse 4, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went up to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. You see, God had told Israel to wipe out the nations inside of Canaan. But outside of Canaan, they could have alliances. They could have covenants and agreements. Knowing this, they come to the children of Israel saying, we're from a far country. We've been on this long journey to come and enter into covenant with you when in fact they're just six miles down the road. Deception's a lot of work. These guys go to a lot of work here. They got to go to the Salvation Army, get some old clothes. They didn't sit around and wait for bread to be moldy. They dug around in the trash can, right? They got into the refrigerator and like, ooh, gross. This is some old moldy bread here. Hey, let's take that with us all in this endeavor to deceive Joshua and the children of Israel. It's a well thought out plan of deception. In verse seven, then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you may dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? So the warnings go off a little bit. How do we know that you're actually who you say you are? How do we know that that you're not actually among us? Moses had warned about this in Exodus 34 verse 12. He says, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. Moses says, be careful that you don't enter into a covenant with those in the land 
because they'll be a trap to you. They'll be a snare to you. How so? Because the temptation would be to worship their gods and enter into idolatry. In verse eight, but they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? If you're a note taker, you write in your Bible, underline, you might want to underline or circle those two questions. Joshua asks two direct questions. Who are you and where do you come from? Now here's their answer. So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all he did in Egypt. True or false? Is that why they came? Because they're so impressed with God? And they want to be followers of the one true living God? No way, right? They're using this as part of their scheme. It's spiritual flattery. And you've got to be careful about that. If you're single and kind of longing to be married and be in a relationship, don't trust the first guy or gal that's like, I read my Bible, you know? Oh, it must be provision from God. They read their Bible, you know? Oh, you go to Rocky Mountain Calvary too? And you like coffee? It must be the Lord, you know? (laughs) Anybody can throw out spiritual things. Learn enough of the scripture just as a way to get what they want. And think about what are their actions? What are they leading to? What What are they really all about? I think we're probably all to this point, and it's kind of sad, but just because somebody puts Christ in their business name or they put a fish that represents Christianity on their sign, you can't trust that they're a Christian businessman or businesswoman, right? It's not wise to go, well, I saw the fish on your sign, so now I'm not even going to think about what you're slipping to me as a contract. And unfortunately, some people have used unbiblical ethics under the name of Christ. So don't fall for that spiritual flattery. But they put it on there. They put it on Joshua. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who was at Ashroth. So they say, we heard about these two victories in the wilderness. They can't use Jericho and Ai because that would blow their cover. They've supposedly been traveling for a long time and they're telling Joshua, we've kind of been outside of hot spots. There hasn't been any Wi-Fi and so... You know, these are the things that that we know that that God has done, but we're really not up of what has been happening here recently. They'd practiced and rehearsed what to say. Verse 11, they continue on. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours... We took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new and see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Lots of details, but no answers to the two questions. Isn't that interesting? They never answered the two questions. This is something that I try to imply or apply in my life is if I ask a direct question and somebody can't give me a direct answer, there's something wrong. 
And it doesn't matter what arena of life that it's in. Maybe some kind of dealing that, that we're having as a family. If, if somebody's coming to do this or do that or get a car worked on or it's here inside of the church. If there's a direct question and someone gives me all of these details, but it's the classic run around. Okay, wait a second. No, I asked this and this is all the information that I got. Even for myself, if someone asks me a direct question and I'm starting to do the sidestep, there's something wrong in my heart. I'm starting to go down this road of being deceptive and not speaking the truth and in love. So it can be a good thing to, to keep in mind. Why am I not answering the question directly or why are they not answering me directly? In verse 14, this is the key verse. Then the men of Israel took of some of their provisions, but they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. The provisions looked great. Church, the provisions looked great. They're saying, I want to be your servant. That sounds pretty good, right? Imagine somebody coming to your house today. They're saying, you know, I just want to make sure and do all your laundry for the rest of your life. And you never have to cook again. We're going to have some enchiladas coming to you tonight. And then tomorrow night, it's going to be filet mignon. And I'm even going to carry your firewood, and do your grocery shopping, clean the toilets, scrub the floor. And all of a sudden, the leaders of Israel are going, praise the Lord, God provides. The Lord provides. And so they take of the provision, but they never stop to ask counsel of God. What does God say? This was the same thing that happened with Ai. Overconfidence, they went into the battle not seeking the Lord. It's a simple lesson. We're in a battle. The victory is won as we ask God and obey what he says. That's it. That's it. If we'll stop and ask and listen and do what he says, then the victory is won in our lives. I've really been impressed and meditating this week of just been reminded of how relational God is. See, God's not just into church attendance or us just knowing information, but he's all about our hearts and being in relationship with us. He's our father. So this is more than just getting the right answer and doing the right thing. This is walking with our father. This is the counsel of a loving dad that wants to lead us and guide us in the right path. Jesus tells us he's our good shepherd. That's relationship, where he's wanting to protect, he's wanting to lead us into to green pastures, still waters. It's walking with him. We know that as the church, we're the bride, he's the bridegroom. That's an intimate, personal relationship, where he leads, guides, protects, washes us with the water of the word. But notice God doesn't force or impose his counsel on Joshua and the children of Israel. In this relationship, he chooses to be a gentleman, where he won't force himself on us. He's waiting for me to ask. Ask in faith, Lord, what do you have for me? Maybe you're saying, well, how do I ask counsel of God? It's in prayer. It's in that relationship of coming to him in prayer. It's in the word of God. It's through other believers. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There's no shortcuts. It's stopping and taking the time to seek his face. In verse 15, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them a covenant, a solemn oath before God. And it happened at the end of three days, after they'd made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt 
near them. This is the oh no moment. Oh, I had an oh no moment yesterday. We were out running some errands. We went to three or four stores, all four kids, mom and dad. We were rocking the minivan. Stop off at the library, and I'm holding little Wyatt. He's now a year old. He's got his diaper on, just wearing a onesie. It's hot, and I start to smell some funkiness. Not a huge surprise. Not an oh no moment yet, right? And then I just feel some stuff on my hands. And he had a blowout right there in the library. And starting to get on his hands. And I look down on my shorts. And it's like, I don't remember any mustard being on my shorts. And it was that oh no moment that it happened. And that's what I imagine for the children of Israel and the elders. They're like, oh no. Like, what in the world happened here? These guys said they live far away. Now these three days have gone by and we discover that they're our neighbors. I think the only worse oh no moment in scripture was Jacob. Remember him? He really wanted to marry Rachel. But instead, dad slipped Leah and he wakes up on the honeymoon. It's the wrong lady. I mean, that's like the ultimate oh no moment. Like, what happened here? This is the wrong gal. Verse 17, and the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cherifah, Beeroth, and Kiroth, Jerim. We don't have the details on this, but it seems like the Gibeons go. And Israel assumes we've made an alliance in a faraway country. This is going to work out just fine. Then they send spies or they send their army to go into these four cities and here are these guys flipping hamburgers. You know, they're like, hey, you look familiar. And the guys flipping hamburgers are like, BFF, best friends forever. You can't kill me. You made a covenant. And they realize we've been had. We've been deceived. These guys aren't who they said they were. In verse 18, this is so important, but the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord God of Israel and all of the congregation complained against the rulers. The congregation wants revenge. These guys deceived us. We need to wipe them out and take these four cities. But the elders, the rulers, they say, no. We made an oath. We made a solemn covenant before God. In verse 19, then all of the rulers said to all the congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will, not, we will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. It's so easy for one sin to lead to another sin. This first mistake was one of deception. And they had the wisdom to not allow deception to lead to transgression. What's the difference between Eve's sin and Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden? Eve was deceived. Adam sinned willfully. He allowed deception to go to transgression. And here Joshua says, no, we're going to honor this covenant and this commitment that we've made before God. How serious is God about this covenant? You might want to write down 2 Samuel 21. David's king. There's a famine in the land for three years. David wisely asks the Lord, why the famine? 
God answers because it was the way that Saul had treated the Gibeonites. Saul had killed some of the Gibeonites. He disobeyed the covenant. And so God allowed Israel to be in famine for three years. David goes to the Gibeonites and say, how do I make this right? He says, we want five of Saul's sons. So David goes and kills five of Saul's sons. And it says that God then heeded the prayer of the land. God started listening to the prayer of Israel. So that's how serious God was about this covenant. They entered into a contract, a covenant with God that would pass on through the generations, that all of the Israelites were to honor and to not kill the Gibeonites. In verse 21, and the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers, for the house of my God. Joshua wisely has them serve in the service of the house of God. Joshua knows the word. He knows the danger that the children of Israel would enter into idolatry, serve their gods. So he wants them as close to the one true living God as possible. Their response to Joshua's offer here in the next few verses, they answer Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. They're happy to be alive. It sounds great. We'll be your servants. We'll be your slaves. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made the woodcutters and the water carriers for the congregation for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. So now let's take a few minutes and pause. What does this mean for us? Because when we study the scriptures, it's not just history and like, wow, this was an important lesson for Joshua, but what's the lesson for us and what does it tell us about the Lord? So here's four thoughts that I wrote down. And the first is this, be alert, the enemy is crafty. Be alert, the enemy is crafty. We know that we are in this full-on assault from Satan, that he does want to kill and steal and destroy. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. It's very clear. But we also have the crafty work of a deceitful enemy. Is a thief going to announce his presence? Absolutely not. And the really good thieves may even befriend you as a family. They may not even need to break into your house because if they can break into your bank account, those are the thieves that are really making a profit. Those other guys are really small time, aren't they? Satan's going to be clever and he's going to be crafty. And in Ephesians 6 verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You're saying, well, I've never been attacked that way. I've never really considered myself to be in a spiritual battle. There could be a few things that are going on. Is One is maybe we're not living inside of the mission of Christ. 
we really haven't gotten that motivated about heaven being full and hell being empty. And we've chose a comfortable Christian life. So Satan's like, great, you're ineffective. I can't get you to deny your faith, but you're really not joining in the mission of Christ. So there's really no spiritual battle. The moment that we get serious and start praying for unbelievers, taking the gospel to them, risking rejection to share Christ, man, the opposition is going to come in our lives. Or it may be that we've just completely dismissed the supernatural, saying, I can't see it, I, I trust it, it's there in the word of God, but I'm not experiencing it. And again, I think Satan's won a, a victory there, convincing us that there was really no battle, and in fact, we're getting deceived. When I was listening to a message on this section of scripture, this was an illustration that was given that I really liked it, and it was cockroaches. And you're saying, what does cockroaches have to do with this? Well, apparently, if you find a cockroach in your house and you see one and you stomp on it and you tell your wife, I took care of the cockroach problem. No, you haven't. There's 199 that you can't see for every one that you can see. So you think you got rid of the cockroaches and then the cockroaches come out at night and do a dance party on your head, right? And that's the work of the enemy. We think we're dealing with one problem here, And we realize that there's all of this that is unseen. So what do we do? We don't respond in fear. In fact, as we sang tonight or this morning (laughs) in worship, the great I am. Satan can't stand in comparison to God. The victory has already been won. We stand in God's power and his might through the armor of God, through prayer, through the word of God. The book of James tells us to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But be careful, there is a real enemy that's crafty. Jesus said, looks out for the wolves in sheep's clothing. That means they look like sheep, they talk like sheep, but they don't eat like sheep. So there's people that will come inside of the church of God that will desire to to rip you off. Peter warned about it. John warned about it. Paul warned about it a lot. We have an enemy that we need to take into account. The next is stop and seek God's counsel. Stop and seek God's counsel. It looks so good. Looks like a slam dunk. Perfect business opportunity. The perfect house. Oh, the right relationship. Stop and seek God's counsel. What does the Lord say? What does his word say? Hear his voice in prayer. Ask counsel of other believers. This text screams this. Do not rush into relationships. Do not rush into relationships. That's what the children of Israel did. That's what Joshua did. This looks great. This is perfect. This is wonderful. It has to be the Lord. And then they had the, oh no. I got poop on my hands. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And sometimes we do that, especially when it comes to romantic relationships, right? You're single, you're high school, college age, 45, 55, it doesn't matter. And oh, God's doing something here. He's provided. And before you know it, you've entered into a lifelong covenant that God wants you to honor and you married a monster with this online dating that takes place. And I'm not saying that it's all bad. I've known some people that have met online and have wonderful godly relationships, but I would sure recommend spending 
some time together more so than just online. Maybe you met online, but you better spend some time in some real life situations before you rush into a relationship. Because even when you're dating, it's easy to behave. Everybody can behave at Outback in a movie. I mean, I can behave at Outback in a movie. It's not hard to behave at Outback in a movie. If you're having problems at Outback in a movie, you might want to back up a little bit because it, it does get a little harder than just out back in a movie, right? You may want to try things like, hey, let's serve together with the two-year-olds at RMC for six months. And you're going to start to really find out what that person's like. And better to really get an idea of some strengths and weaknesses than just to enter into it blindly. Spend time with their family. That's a, that's a great idea. Spend time with their friends. Their friends reflect a lot about who they are as a person, but don't just rush into it. Anybody can present themselves well on our date or online. You know, you could put on online, I'm tall, dark, handsome, never mind the big nose and the unibrow. Read the Bible, let's see, five times a year. Fast all the time. By the end of that little post, 30 inquiries of, yeah, I want to marry this guy. Don't rush into relationships. How about friendships? Young people, high school students, college students, I can't tell you how many times I've been at the hospital and someone's life is destroyed because of who they chose as friends. And for those of you that are in high school, there's this crazy thing that happens to you. It happened to me as well. You think you're smarter than your parents. I was so smart and my parents were so foolish when I was in high school, right? And your parents love you and they tell you things like, hey, you really shouldn't hang out with that group of people. Hey, you need to be careful with him. You need to be careful with her. You're gonna be blessed. You're gonna be wise if you listen to them. Be careful who you open up your heart to. Don't misunderstand me. Be friendly with everybody. Seek to share the gospel with them, but choose your core friends very carefully because they're gonna influence you. The scripture tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. How about business contracts? Oh, I'm, this is great. There's going to be so much profit here. But who are you really linking up with? Who are you going to walk with in this long-term business contract? How about a 30-year mortgage? It's a great time to buy. Interest rates, it may be. The Lord may be blessing. And this may be exactly what he wants to do. But it sure seems wise to check in with him first before we enter into a 30-year commitment. I remember when my wife and I bought our first house, it was day three. And I told my wife, I really don't like being a homeowner because we bought a fixer-upper. She's like, you should have thought about that before we signed a 30-year mortgage, right? And I worked through it, but you got to stop and think about what am I about ready to sign here? You take on a car payment at seven years, you know, that's a long time. And it may be what God wants and it's what he's providing or he may have something else that we've got to stop and, and seek his counsel. As we seek God's counsel, there will be times where he lets us know you're at 31 flavors. And you're saying, what are you talking about, Eric? 31 flavors. Baskin Robbins. When you go with your kids to Baskin Robbins, do you tell them, now you can only have vanilla because you're a Christian. And you're in a Christian family and the only Christian flavor is vanilla. So go get it. You say, hey, there's 31 flavors. Pick the flavor that you want. And you see your kids just start to, 
oh, that's a hard choice. I mean, there's bubble gum over here and mocha almond fudge over here. And what do I do? You know, and there's times where God will say, hey, here's my distinct will. Here's my word. It's very clear. It's written. And there's other times where God will say, hey, you're in 31 flavors. What do you like? What do you enjoy? Go for it. There's not a wrong decision. But we'll know that as we spend time with them and we spend time in his word. Honestly, those are the harder decisions for me. I love it when God opens a door that nobody can close, that he closes a door that no one can open. It's hard when God gives me a, a choice and says, hey, you just choose. What do you enjoy? What do you like to do in this? Another thing here is don't compound sin with sin. This is an application from this section of scripture. Don't compound sin with sin. Don't start the sin snowball or the sin avalanche. And I know for some of you, you did rush into a relationship and you're saying it's too late. I entered into this covenant relationship. I'm married to somebody who's an unbeliever and I was hoodwinked. They pretended to be a believer. They pretended to be somebody that they now aren't. And you're thinking, I'll divorce them. That's compounding sin with sin. They had to honor a covenant that they never should have made. And maybe you shouldn't, in an ideal situation, have entered into that marriage, but divorcing them will not make that wrong right. Two wrongs don't make a right. 1 Corinthians 7 addresses this. This is God's word to us. It says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they want to stay married to you, you stay in that covenant. If they leave, if they abandon you, then you have peace but your goal is to love them in a way that will lead them to Christ Jesus. So you're not making it so miserable that they have no other choice but to leave. You honor that commitment. I'm about ready to deal with a sensitive subject, so I want to warn you, and that is abortion. And ladies, you, you may be in a place where you find yourself pregnant, and it's not the ideal situation. And you're wrestling with, should I end the pregnancy? Should I have an abortion? And I, I want you just to open up your heart for just a minute. And I know it's a sensitive issue. And look at the section of scripture. Is don't compound the situation by making another mistake. And allow the Lord to work. And stay tuned, because in Joshua 10, God causes the sun to stand still on Joshua's behalf because they honored their commitment. And God will do the impossible if at this point you'll say, you know what, I'm not going to make things worse by making another poor choice and choose to have that child. I really believe that in our time, we can see abortion start to turn around. And you know why? Because of ultrasounds. If you stop and take the time to get an ultrasound, you'll see right in front of your eyes that it is a life inside of that womb. The ultrasounds are so good that even at six weeks, you can see the heart beating. Six weeks. You don't even find out that you're pregnant until right around that time. The four to five week window. That little heart, I've seen it. The four chambers of the heart. You can see the hands inside of these ultrasounds. You can even see the distinct features of your child's face. We've had these 3D ultrasounds and the kids are born and you're like, I've seen that face before. I've seen it in the ultrasound. Scientifically, factually, we know without a shadow of a doubt that it is a life inside of that womb. I want to encourage you. If you make that bold step to have that child, one is we're going to rally around you. 
Ladies, there's women in this church that want to befriend you, love you, support you, will be there for you and walk with you as you go through this. If you're in a place where you're saying, I really can't be a mother to this child, it's a courageous thing to stop and consider, and you choose adoption, I know that God will provide some families, Christian families, that will adopt your child and will be involved in that process but stop and consider it and see what the Lord would do in the midst of that decision. Maybe you've fathered children, you've had kids and the relationship failed from that point forward and the temptation is, well, I'm just gonna walk away from the kids. No, don't compound sin with sin. That relationship is dissolved for whatever reason, but you step up and fulfill that responsibility as a mom. You step up and fulfill that responsibility as a dad. And you be involved in that child's life as much as possible and go through the heartache of working out all those situations. Maybe it's a lie that you find yourself living in this morning and you say, you know what? I can't come out and speak the truth. Well, guess what? Today's the day of forgiveness, redemption, of God opening up hearts and and minds where you don't have to live in a way of covering your tracks. Before we move on, I know that the issue of abortion is, is so deep because for some of you, it brings up things from the past. And men, you encouraged, you supported, you paid for an abortion and your heart's grieved. Women, you, you look back at a point in your life and you chose to have an abortion. Is please hear me is that the Lord loves you, he forgives you, Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. I think that's one of the deepest wounds that you could possibly bear. But don't shut your heart off, God loves you. And he was gonna minister to your heart and look to him and allow him to do that work in your heart and your life. This is the last thing this morning and I just absolutely love this, is make your mistakes work for you. That's what Joshua did. What did he do with the Gibeonites? He said, you guys are gonna be wood carriers. He put his mistakes to work. Joshua didn't blame the Gibeonites. He didn't go, you dirty, rotten scoundrels. If you wouldn't have come here and been so deceptive, I would have never done this in the first place. When we make mistakes, our number one MO is to blame them. It's their fault. They were the person that came and and did this to me, and we play ourselves out to be a victim. As long as we do that, our mistakes will never work for us. He doesn't blame anybody else. He owns it, but he also doesn't wallow in self-condemnation. Joshua doesn't go, oh man, it's done for. There's no future for us, but he begins to make wise, practical decisions. He puts his mistakes to work for him. And that's what we can do. We can look at our mistakes and say, I'm not gonna blame others, and I'm not gonna walk in self-condemnation, but how do I learn from this and allow this to now work for me and for the benefits of others? Church, RMC, Joshua's the best of the best. And he didn't stop and seek God's counsel. We're gonna have those times and those moments that we go, oh no, I'm stuck with a group of Gibeonites. What do I do? I didn't seek the Lord like I should. As we learn from our mistake and we begin to make good, sound, wise decisions from that point forward. Proverbs tells us that a righteous man will fall seven times, but every time will get back up. And Joshua is a great example from this. So let's stand and pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to walk in these truths.
Father, thank you for...